The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. All one word. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button. As well, you can uh, archive old shows from the past. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good, good morning, Scott. Scott. Hi, Don. Hey, and, Andy. and, you know, uh, here we are drudging our way through uh, January and and uh, in a COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, you know, this has to still be weighing on people, although financially, it, it, is it affecting the markets that, uh, that much? Do we see much reaction here short term? You know, I just want to, I'll jump in and I got ahead of a quick comment I wanted to make on that, and there was a report that came out of National Bank of Canada regarding uh, economics and strategies here in Canada. But one of the observations they made, and the title of the report was Canada, Strong Positive Wealth Effect Despite the Pandemic. And what they were looking at is historically, whenever a country or in Canada, when we go through a recession, the first year of a recession is always marked with a decrease in Canadians' um, wealth, and right. that could be a drop in the stock market, it could be a drop in house prices, it could be any number of things. And so uh, this is the first time ever in the history that they've been using this report that we actually, Canadians actually enjoyed an improvement in their balance sheet during the initial year of a recession. So mm. what a strange uh, just combination of events when we saw the big dip last March uh, in terms of the stock market. Uh, and the quick numbers in terms of 2020 performance, the um, Toronto stock market was up 5.6% last year. Home prices were up 8.5% last year. Uh, bonds were up 87 And then uh, internationally, the uh, U.S. market was up 16% and emerging markets up 16% last year as well. So really strange year overall in terms of people's financial, uh, you know, their, their, the wealth effect in terms of their home. For sure. And Don, that uh, speaks to what you want to talk about, start with here today, and that's pandemic financial habits, habits that we have found ourselves or we have to uh, execute during a pandemic when it comes to finances. Well, it's interesting. You know, they always say it takes something like 90 days to get a new habit. Well, we've been in this pandemic for a lot longer than 90 days. And, you know, everybody's kind of slowly and and, and, kind of fighting it all the way along the way is getting into these new habits, just like any other habit, whether it be working from home. I'm getting used to these, like we're talking right now, uh, via a virtual meeting right now. So, you know, Andy and Scott and I are looking at each other's on computer screens right now. So, again, fighting technology and, and different ways of doing things. However, now we are into it uh, a good 10 months, and everybody's created these new habits. And it's kind of interesting. A lot of them have been um, kind of personal habits, such as, you know, self-care uh, making time for themselves, trying to, you know, basically get through this pandemic so they keep their their attitude good. Accountability, staying in touch with people, and maybe getting a little exercise. Um, talking about exercise, that's definitely one. I don't know about you two, but you're seeing way more people walking the streets or the sidewalks, et cetera, in the neighborhoods. 
That's true. Yeah. Hey, nice, nice shirt, by the way, Don. Well, oh, thanks, Andy. <laughs> well, bicycle shirt. I, it's actually a long sleeve shirt with little bicycles on it. So thank you. And but, uh, uh, yeah, no, literally, people are walking everywhere. It's, yeah. Actually, my wife was upset because people are walking a lot at night, and nobody's wearing anything reflective. Everybody's wearing black, and she said, "You're going to get hit." <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do know less than my wife and I. We do have our uh, reflective gear, and it is amazing how that stands out when you're driving because uh, oh, we did yeah. see uh, some down our street too, and very hard to see them until we got close. So, you know, all these habits, whether it was exercise and, and keeping that little health pod, like, you know, people started to, you know, just be good people and looking after, say, a group of, you know, four to six people and keeping in touch with them and how you're doing and what you what you had for dinner last night, and, and so forth. Well, these are kind of the pandemic habits and really kept, kept people's attitudes and mental health really well, um, and all those things really did a great job. That being said, and, and to Andy's point, people also created new savings habits. And what I think is what we need to do is once this pandemic's over, let's start, let's keep some of these habits. They weren't all bad. In fact, a lot of them were really good. Wait a sec, Don, are, are those saving habits that have changed, or is it the spending habit that's changed? <laughs> Great point, Scott, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, if you were to talk to these exact people a year ago, and here we are in January, the pandemic wasn't really, you know, it was kind of out in China somewhere. Nobody really talked about this uh, COVID too much back then. And if you were to ask them, you know, could you save thousand dollars a month as an example i would suggest most people said no they couldn't and they would look at a lot of things that were your needs i need to do this i need to do this and it was one thing this pandemic has done it really has prioritized needs versus wants and really in a lot of the cases it's been essential versus non-essential and you're seeing you know obviously grocery stores are essential but going to a concert is non-essential and so going to, say, making coffee at home versus continually going to your, your local you know, Starbucks, Tim Hortons, whatever the case is, people are saving money. And so the savings rate was, a year ago, 2 to 3%. And Canada was certainly in not great shape from uh, indebtedness. Per person, we were one of the highest in the world uh, for a first world country. Any idea what it's gone from? If you guys were to guess, it was 2 to 3%, the savings rate. From April to June of last year, what do you think it jumped to? I'll guess 10%. I think it went up 21%. <laughs> well, Andy, you're uh, closest, but even then it went 27.3% from April to June. I you, Scott. Like, yeah, if if you would have given that point seven or point four, whatever it was, then I then you know what, forget it. You didn't uh, you didn't guess that. You're reading the same notes Don is. <laughs> The, the point here, who would have thought you could go from a 2 to 3% savings rate to a 27% savings rate? Yeah. Nobody would have guessed that. And that was in the first kind of lockdown. So then the summer came, and yes, people started getting out and spending money again. It was still 14.6% was the savings rate. So I would have been happy to see it go from 2 to 3 to 14.6. So there's a ton of money for those that, you know, there's a, a, an, an unfortunate few that are unable to say because they're not working, they don't have the income. But those that were continue able to work, they're, uh, they're banking a lot of money. And a lot of the things that they said they would normally do all the time and really fit right into their lifestyle, they're no longer doing. And we are the best 
for rationalizing why we can't save. We're the best for rationalizing. We, we don't exercise. We, we are the best rationalizers, period, whatever it is. And when it comes to savings, we can come up with a ton of excuses why we need to spend money. And so let's say, and I was speaking with a client just last week, and their gas, just the gas alone, because they used to commute. And so they were spending about 500 a month for, you know, just gasoline. And it's now down to about 200 a month if they're lucky. You know, uh, just $300 that is being saved just automatically. And this is going to be likely going to continue. There will be some hybrid where a lot of people may go to the office, say, two times a week. But it's, it's not going to be fully back to the where it was before. Well, I looked at that and said, let's say you took that $300 a month and nothing else, and you put that for the, into an RSP, and you're 100% equities. And you invested it, and you were able to get 8% a year for 25 years. So you're, right now you're 40 years old, and, you're, and you can let it sit there for 25 years, adding just, just the gas savings, never mind everything else. You'd end up with $285,000. Well, then you could take that two eighty-five and and say invest that a little safer because now you're retired, you want to have an income, and at 5%, you could get a $1,530 per month income. Interesting enough, that $300 a month over 25 years is only $90,000. So that's what you actually put away, but you actually got back $550,000. Well, that sounds like phenomenal, just that alone. But what if you also took the tax savings? Because this went into an RSP, you would have saved 30% in tax if you're in a middle tax bracket, say between 44000 and 80000 Well, that would end up saving you another $85,000 if, if you invested that money. So if you took the tax savings and applied that into investment earning 8%, it would grow to another 85000 which works out to another 456 a month until you're age 95. At the end of the day, your $90 that you save simply on this gas savings because of this pandemic and you said, you know what, I'm not spending it, I'm going to save it, you end up paying out 714000 during retirement. Absolutely amazing what you can do simply just by, you know, really putting your mind to it. So biggest thing there is start to prioritize needs versus wants. Um, the next one would paying down debt and deleverage. And we are seeing that uh, people that, may not be saving, they are actually paying down debt. And, you know, common sense would say you pay down the highest interest debt first, whether it's credit cards or car loans that are higher paying. But then if you were to even look a bit past that and say, you know what, I've got a line of credit, and it's at prime plus a half. So you're paying, you know, 2.95% currently. Now, a year ago, interest rates were a little higher. They were uh, literally 1% higher, so that line of credit would have been 3.95. And right now, if you said, you know what, it's pretty good interest rates, I might want to lock that up and put that into a mortgage. Well, you could likely get a mortgage for five years at the 1.7 to 2% range. And you now have locked that money up. So once we're kind of out of this pandemic, there is some schools of thought saying, well, we're going to start raising the interest rates because they were lowered to help people during this pandemic. So we're going to raise them a little bit anyway. Well, before, if you're just paying interest only, currently at uh, 2.95%, your your payments would be $245 a month if you owed $100,000. 
Well, nice thing is, if you locked it up into a 25-year mortgage, you're, all, you're now paying $354, only $110 more a month than you would be on interest only, and you're paying down the debt. Now, I know you can afford this, because before, the interest rates were 1% higher, and you were paying almost the exact same as the mortgage payment previous to this pandemic. So the whole point is, is let's see if there's ways to pay down the debt better. Talk to your financial planner. Um, you know, if you're not in debt, or how do you save it better? If you are in debt, how do you pay it down better? It's always that yin and yang between saving and and uh, paying down debt. And finally, last one is find a purpose during retirement. If this pandemic has not shown us one thing, it's almost like a, a mini retirement trial for some, where you had a lot more time at home, and you have to start to say, okay, what should I do differently? What hobbies will I take into account? And it gives you a little bit of an idea what retirement is because, as it turns out, a lot of people suffer from anxiety and depression in the first few years of retirement. And so this was almost a a good way to say, okay, if I'm going to go into retirement in the next few years, this is like a trial run, and maybe you you, you got a few good lessons out of this. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. All right, this break, we're going to talk about family investment funds. What does that mean? Family investment trusts. Oh, sorry, trusts. You almost got it right. That's, that's okay. But this is, this is a really cool idea. So listen up, people, because uh, I think this is a really interesting opportunity uh, to be able to A, save tax, and B, uh, maybe help support your children or your grandchildren. And I know that that's something that's top priority for many parents or grandparents, for sure. So I'm calling this the Family Investment Trust. And essentially, a family investment trust, there are, there are two separate kinds of family investment trusts. And the first one is what we call an age 40 trust. And this is basically a separate trust that you create for one child. And or a grandchild. And uh, I'm going to give you an example later on. Um, the second type is what we call a discretionary family trust. It's a similar type of strategy in many ways, but the purpose of this one would be to have, if you had multiple beneficiaries, so multiple grandchildren that you were looking to help fund uh, their some of their ongoing expenses. And so <clears throat> this these uh, family investment trusts, you know, the, I guess the big question is, is it right for you? And, and who, who is suitable for something like this? And so a couple of things to consider. Number one would be if you have cash or investments that is not needed to fund your lifestyle. And so for an example might be, let's say you're talking about a grandparent, um, you know, you've got RIF uh, money coming in, so you're over age 71, 
you don't need that money uh, each year. Typically, you've either been reinvesting it or perhaps putting it into your tax-free savings account. Um, maybe you're seeing that you're, despite what Don was saying, outside of the normal, uh, the, uh, the COVID saving uh, rush that we've seen, if you're generally saving money, your savings are building up in your bank accounts over the course of a year, then uh, again, you've got more income coming in than you need to maintain your lifestyle. Uh, or maybe you've got assets that have grown or are growing, and um, and you know you're going to be leaving, you know, a significant estate. It could be other, it could be pieces of real estate. It could be a business that you own. In other words, you've got investments or cash that you don't need to fund your lifestyle. Now, how do you know that for sure? And I think how confident can you be to consider one of these family trusts? And I think that comes back to speaking to your financial planner. And um, you know, so we're. Both Don and I are CFPs, and as a you know, as as a result of that, we we really do want to go deep in terms of everyone's financial situation, understanding your net worth, your cash flow, and what does your net estate look like. So, we would want to do a projection for you, or we want to ask your financial planner to do a projection for you to understand what does your net worth look like going forward, what does your net estate look like, and what's your cash flow like each year, and so that'll sort of help solidify that, you know what, we feel confident. And I find that as people get older, they become more aware and more certain that, you know what, you're right, we don't need all this money to be able to maintain our lifestyle and enjoy our retirement. What else could we be doing or should we be doing? And then I guess the next thing would be, is it right for you, is if you have a desire to establish a portfolio or an investment portfolio for the next generation, and the final piece in terms of if it's right for you would be a desire to provide funding for either schooling or extra expenses uh, for a child or grandchild. So are you interested in helping pay for or funding schooling or other expenses for a child or grandchild? So with that as sort of the background, you're kind of thinking, yeah, you know what, that kind of fits into uh, my situation. And uh, yeah, I want to help out the, my grandchildren. Yes, I have extra money left over. Um, what's the best way to do that? And so this is where these two types of trusts come in, the age 40 trust and the discretionary family trust. So let's start off. We'll talk a little bit about the age 40 trust first. So it, this is a great, great strategy. It's very tax efficient. And I guess that's the key thing. It's a tax efficient accumulation of the investments for future use by a grandchild. And so while the child is under the age of 21, there are special provisions in the Income Tax Act that deem any of the income that's earned by the investments within this trust are going to be taxed in the hands of that child or grandchild under the age of 21. And this is a deemed uh, payment to the to the beneficiaries, and what I mean by deemed payment is that you don't physically have to transfer or put the money into their hands. So, if you imagine you have an investment, it's growing, it's earned some interest and dividends and capital gains, and really what you're going to do is just all of those interest, dividends, and capital gains. It's like you're going to issue a T slip to your grandchild for that amount. And they're going to include it on their tax return. But you're not going to have cashed in any of your investments. Any of the investments, they will all still be in the account and growing. Okay? Now, how much can a person 
under the age of 21, assuming no other income, how much can they earn and not pay any tax? So roughly in Ontario, it's about 13000 and change of interest income, $26,000 of capital gains income, or up to $60,000 per year of eligible dividend income and not pay any tax. So I think the wheels are turning. You're going, did I hear that right? You don't have to pay any tax. Is that correct? So we're all sort of thinking, what is this? And so this is the secret sauce. And the secret sauce is because no actual payment is being made from the trust until age 21. Uh, they can let that money accumulate and grow. So if you imagine there's a parent or a grandparent, and let's say get a grandparent, they've got money that's built up. Right now, they're earning interest dividend capital gains on it. They're paying tax on it at their marginal tax rate. And so there's slippage there, right? They lose that tax every year. That same capital invested in one of these trusts, they could now sprinkle or, or give that income to their grandchild, and the grandchild would pay no tax on it. So that sounds like a good start. So that's up to age 21. So now, once they reach 21 and over, that deemed receipt stops. So no longer can they just say, okay, we're allocating it, but we're not cashing it in. You have to physically pay out the annual income to the individual after age 21. So in some cases, that's still a great idea. Maybe they're at uh, post-secondary school. Uh, they have certain other credits available to them in terms of maybe tuition credits, etc. And so really what that ends up doing is meaning they're still in a tax. They're still not going to pay any tax, despite the fact that they're receiving the money, um, unless they have a super summer job and they make a lot of other income. Uh, and if it turns out that, you know, maybe they don't go to school and they've got, you know, they've launched into a career and they're earning a high income and they're over age 21, then uh, you could wind up the trust. And that's the final piece of this is that the trust Prior to age 40, any remaining assets in the trust must be uh, wound up and paid out to the beneficiary, okay? So um, really what it does is it gives grandparents an opportunity to uh, help assist in terms of ongoing costs for a, a, a child or uh, help assist in terms of building a pool of capital that will be available for that child after the age of 21, in theory, and before age, by the time they're 40 at least. And so um, so that's a great one. We're just dealing with an individual grandchild or child that we want to look after. The second one, the discretionary family trust, is where we have multiple beneficiaries. And um, this is the preferred choice if you want to use it to get those income and capital gains to fund ongoing expenses for multiple children or grandchildren. And annually, the income would be taxed. If you don't pay the income out in this example, then it will be taxed inside that trust. And if it's taxed, if it's kept inside the trust, it's taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. So that's not a good thing. So the most important part about option two, the discretionary family trust, is that all of the income is paid out to the beneficiaries. Again, it's taxed in their hands. They can, uh, the, the, they can use it to pay for um, school costs. They can use it to pay for clothing costs. They can use it to pay for um, tutors. They can, anything, you, anything you can imagine that's part of the cost, ongoing cost of a child. So now we have these two options, these two trusts. Very cool, very interesting, very great strategy that you can use to, to minimize tax going forward and help your grandchildren. How do you get money into this and how do you fund these trusts? And Legally, all trusts 
are established with a small gift. And the, the gift comes from the person or the individual called the settler. And the settler settles the trust or creates the trust by offering a gift, a small gift to establish the trust. Now, the problem with the settler giving money to the trust to establish it is that they would have to report future income and capital gains themselves if they are in control of the trust. So when you create these trusts, the settler is actually going to be a relative or a close friend, and they're going to gift to create the trust, to settle the trust, perhaps a $20 bill or a coin. And those uh, that $20 bill or that coin sits with the trust documents and you never cash it in or you never invest it because the future growth on that little gift is, is technically could be taxable. So there's really no going to be no growth by doing it this way. And so uh, you get a friend to make that initial gift, a uh, relative, and as I mentioned, um, it's just notional in terms of, and, and of course, the thing about being a friend or relative, they're not going to be involved in future decisions of the trust. Therefore, the taxation to them is, is uh, eliminated. Now, getting money into the trust then, so you've created the trust, we've got the settler, and uh, now you want to put money into it. And the best way to do this is probably through a demand loan. And um, the parents can, or the parent grandparents can control the trust by doing it this way, and they can also um, demand repayment from the trust as well. And um, currently, these types of loans, when you loan the money to a trust, are charged a rate of what Canada Revenue calls, CRA calls, the prescribed rate loan, which is currently 1%. So when you set up this trust, initially, you've got your settlers created it, now you're going to put in some money, and I'm going to use an example uh, of, say, someone putting in $200,000 to this trust. Um, that interest rate of 1%, the prescribed rate of that money loaned to the trust, is for the, it's permanent. That's for the lifetime of the trust until potentially age 40. Uh, that money would be charged 1%. So the trust must pay you, the grandparent, the interest every year by January 30th of the following year. So on a, on a $200,000 loan, it would be $2,000 a year has to be paid back to, in this case, the grandparent. But that interest that is paid... Uh, is tax deductible. Okay, so that's part of a, a benefit to the trust. And the final other piece of this is what we call TOSI, T-O-S-I, which is tax on split income. And this is something that the CRA looks at for people under the age of 18. Um, in this case, it would not apply, assuming you're not including any uh, shares of your personal corporation or holding company. So um, uh, I think what the next thing we want to look at then is how does this actually compare? So let me give you a quick example. Um, let's go with this. I sort of wrote this up. So Antonio and Maria have a five-year-old granddaughter. They have loaned $200,000 to a, a trust established solely for her benefit. The trustees have the discretion to distribute income and capital to their granddaughter in any amount at any time, subject to the condition that all capital must be distributed to their granddaughter prior to her 40th birthday. If the granddaughter failed to survive, if she died earlier, then the trust document would typically have a contingent beneficiary, which would account for that. Um, based on an annual return assumption of 5.75%, the, investment the investments purchased with the $200,000 is expected to generate some investment income 
realized gains, and capital appreciation of about $11,500 per year. Assuming that prescribed rate loan of 1%, that $2,000 would be paid to the grandparents within 30 days of the end of the year. So no income will be attributed to the grandparents, and the trust can deduct the interest expense. Furthermore, until the year in which the beneficiary turns 21, again, all income and capital gains will be deemed payable to the granddaughter and will be reported by her, not the trust. And again, as I mentioned, $13,000 tax-free interest income, $26,000 in capital gain, and $60,000 in eligible dividends before any tax is paid. So now we put this into our uh, software to do some calculations. Let's see how much this actually grows by over the course of the next uh, 10-year period. Um, and by the time, or sorry, by the time that person is age 21, the, the amount is phenomenal, again, because no tax is being paid on this growth along the way. The difference in terms of whether the, par- the grandparents had just simply kept this money in their own name, invested, paid tax on it, you know, gave money to the family, to the grandchild, or, um, uh, or through their estate, the difference on that $200,000 over the next 10 years would be $42,000 less tax, and this is assuming the highest marginal tax bracket, but $42,000 in tax savings. And in addition to that, about a $47,000 net difference in terms of return that is available to the grandchild. So you're going to have an extra $47,000 by using this strategy that is now available to help out your grandchild uh, versus just keeping this money in your own name. Um, Just quickly, I mean, administratively, yes, you do have to file a tax return for the trust each year, but it's very minor. That's not a big deal. It might be, you know, if you're paying an accountant to do it or a tax preparer, you're talking about a hundred bucks to do a T3 tax return for the trust. But a great strategy, these are called family investment trusts, two types, the age 40 trust and the discretionary family trust. Talk to your financial planner about setting up a family investment trust. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. You can listen to old show, uh, old shows there, as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They'll get back to you. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about RSP mistakes. It's that, it's that time of year. It's hard to believe already. It is. Here we are coming to the end of January, and it is RSP season, quotation marks. Uh, You know, uh, as Andy said and I have said over the years, it's becoming less of a season because so many people are adding monthly, and they're using a lot of group plans at work, which is great. Those are a fantastic way. In fact, we always recommend, if I actually were to say, and it's not even in my notes here, but my first mistake would be not to max out your group one because any time the company is matching it, you're, you're turning down free money. So that would be the number one mistake we do see. And it's interesting, Scott, um, probably 
somewhere around 20 to up to 40% of people at, at different works are not maximizing their group one. You see and it so a lot. It's, uh, certainly opportunity. And if, you know, if you're allowed to put in, say, even 5000 a year and you're getting 50% matching, that's $2,500 a year that you're just turning down. Mm-hmm. So can't say that strongly enough on that, how that should be looked at. But uh, another mistake is people just generally kind of just accumulate RSP room. And e- even though they're in a high tax bracket, they always find reasons why they could put money away. Now, we look at this as no different than you would as a pension plan. And the nice thing about pension plans is they take money right off the source. You have no choice. Off comes, if you're, say, a teacher, for example, 12% comes off your pay, and you have no say in this. And unfortunately for you know, some very high-income earners, say making over 97000 well, you're in a 43% tax bracket if you're, if you're making between 97000 and one fifty, And definitely it would make sense to use this and bring your income back down to you know, that 97000 But we're finding people with well over $100,000 in RSP room, and it just kind of accumulates. And like the session we talked about earlier, it ends up being a habit. Some people have the habit of always maximizing their RSPs, and others have the habit of not putting money away. And so a great opportunity, especially this year with the pandemic, because people are, have been banking a bit more money, and what a great opportunity to use up some of that RSP room. Now, when I'm saying RSPs also have this connotation that it is left for retirement, which is normally the case, but it should also looked upon as a deferred savings plan, deferred tax savings plan, rather, because you are saving tax at this bracket, you are paying tax down the road, and so, again, if you are in a higher tax bracket now, definitely makes, makes sense. Even if you have to borrow, there may be, and again, speak to your financial planner on this to see if it makes sense to borrow. Um, part, part of it could be your own savings. Part of it could be borrowed money. And the tax savings could pay down the loan. Now, going uh, back as far as uh, number two is, again, looking at your RSP as, an R, as a pension plan. And people would never say something negative about their pension plan. They say, oh, it's great. I'm going to get X amount at retirement. But when it comes to RSPs, quite often we say, you know, RSPs really, I know, I hear they're not that good. And we've heard this a number of times, and I think those are generally from people that they're having to pay tax on these RSP assets now. So nobody ever likes to pay tax, as a good part of Andy's conversation was. But you do have to. You save tax now, defer it, actually, and you pay tax later. Well, pensions work identically, so it definitely makes sense to contribute to these, and again, this is the time. These first 60 days, as you know, are being used or can be used against the your 2020 tax year, and if you've maxed that out, some uh, eager beavers are putting the money in right now to top up their 2021 RSP limit, but that being said, I would suggest most people are trying to look after their 2020 right now. Now, number three is get the proper tax correct allocation. Now, what I mean by this, I, I know Andy and I come across this all the time where you see somebody that would like to have, say, a 60% equity, 40% fixed income asset allocation mix, meaning 60% is invested in the stock markets across the world and 40% are in things that pay interest and very conservative. Well, what we often find is people are putting the same portfolio in their non-registered as they do with their registered. 
So they have 60-40 split in one and 60-40 split in the other. Well, the problem with this is in the non-registered, all that interest income is taxable at the highest tax bracket. So if you had $200,000 in your RSP and 200000 in non-registered, one option would be to have your non-registered 100% in equities and have your RSP 80% in fixed income, 20% in equities. At the end of the day, you're going to be in the exact same asset allocation overall, but you're going to save a lot of tax because if you had 200000 in non-registered that was invested in fixed income at 3%, that's $2,400 of interest you'd make. And if you're in the top tax bracket, $1,200 per year would be added would be the tax bill on that extra interest income. Uh, number four is don't really I, I, if you're going to be speculative in your investments, definitely I would not recommend it being in your RSP. For that matter, I don't even recommend it in your tax free savings account because you cannot write off capital losses. Um, those can only be written off in your non registered accounts. So those higher risk investments, best even though you have to pay tax if you happen to make a you know hit a home run and and hit a winner. I'd rather see people pay tax because a lot of most of the time these speculative investments do not pan out, and you end up writing them. You can't write them off, and you end up uh, just basically losing money in your RSP. And finally, transferring the losers from your your non-registered to your RSP. What I mean by what I mean by this is uh, there's some people that say, okay, my non-registered investments, I really don't want that let's call it some investment. Um, last year, for example, the banks did poorly in terms of the stock market performance. I'm going to move those over to my RSP. Well, if you transfer a loser, a losing investment where there's a capital loss, and move it into your RSP, you do not get to write off the capital loss. Funny enough, it doesn't work both ways. If you transfer a winner directly into your RSP, you do pay the capital gains on that. So what you need to do if you have a loser, you sell that loser first, and then take the cash and buy the RSP, and that way you get to write off the capital loss. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They'll get back to you. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management, 905-529-7165. Leave a message, they'll return your call, and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Talking about reviewing your will this segment. Yeah, this has been, you know... I think in the last uh, couple of weeks, Don and I have talked about how at the end of each calendar year really signals a great time to do an overall review of your financial situation. And, um, you know, everyone's financial plan, there are multiple components to it. Uh, and just you can start simple where you just simply do um, a net worth statement, the things you own and the things you owe and just to get a handle on where you are. And that's something you can measure every year. Where does our net worth? And, um, but obviously part of a, of a comprehensive review also includes a review of your estate plan. And then we drill down into things like your powers of attorney and your wills. And um, I think I mentioned it last week, but part of our ongoing service to clients is an advisory 
uh, process where we review people's wills and uh, power of attorney. We have uh, uh, 12 uh, lawyers on staff in our estate department that uh, are capable of reviewing, super smart people, capable of reviewing wills for clients and pointing out any observations or ideas. And uh, so just in preparation, I was um, getting ready to send a will off to our, our lawyers, and I was sort of summarizing what one client was doing for themselves with respect to their power of attorney and their will. And it was pretty good overall. I, don't, I think there was nothing... Uh, Nothing that jumped out at me, but just as a conversation piece for people, you think about the different options available to you. I just want to run through what they had done with respect to those documents. So uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the power of attorney. Now, power of attorney, we know there are two different ones. There's one for property and there's one for personal care. And a power of attorney for property deals with all of your financial assets and things that you own, uh, all of the property that you own. <clears throat> and... The number one thing on this particular client, their their power of attorney for property was immediate, which meant that once they when they signed that last year, it came into effect, and that power of attorney was up and running right from the moment it was signed and witnessed. Um, some people have a springing power of attorney, <clears throat> and a springing power of attorney or a limited power of attorney. So let's say, for example, you were going away for three months and you decided you wanted somebody to look after your, be able to look after your affairs while you're out of the country, you can give somebody a power of attorney for a period of time. Um, but in this case, there was an immediate power of attorney, so that means their spouse uh, was the power of attorney right out of the get-go. They had an alternate, and the alternate was uh, both uh, this individual's sister and sister-in-law, jointly. And that was in case their husband couldn't do it. And so um, that also only kicked in until their children, all of their children, were over the age of 30. And so what this person was sort of contemplating was that, um, you know, while my kids are young, and so I think there were three kids uh, all under 30, um, until they're 30, they're really probably not mature enough or capable maybe to handle all of this. So that until that point, let's get the two the sister and the sister-in-law involved uh, if, if the husband can't. And then, so if they are over 30 and this, the power of attorney needs to be, uh, her property needs to be engaged then, um, and acted upon, then all three kids would be the second alternate jointly. So that was the power of attorney for property. Power of attorney for personal care was very similar, except uh, in this case it was the spouse, the husband, right away as the first uh, uh and then the alternate was the three kids jointly. So in this case, they go, well, if it's all, all the kids are the only ones that can do it, let's give it that power of attorney to make those personal care decisions. Now, I just want to mention that personal care power of attorney only comes into effect when you as the individual can't make decisions. And in many cases, so that would often have to be uh, proven through, um, uh, through a doctor's uh, assessment. Uh, there are decisions that they can make as a personal personal care power of attorney, but uh, many um, heavy lifting decisions as far as health care uh, have to be made once that once you can't make it yourself. Uh, so then we move on to the will. The executor for the will was the husband, and assuming that uh, he survives 30 days, then uh, he would carry on as executor. If he died within that 30-day period, the first alternate was, again, the sister and sister-in-law jointly until the kids reached age 30. So once, uh, once all the kids are over 30, they're now, they're now the alternate uh, if the husband can't do it, and the three kids were uh, executors jointly. 
Uh, as far as then what they wanted to do with their estate, the beneficiary, um, they kept this fairly simple. 100% of it went to their surviving spouse. Uh, if they survived 30 days, if they didn't survive within 30 days, or, um, then it went to the three kids equally. Now, here was the here's the twist, I think, in terms of the beneficiary payouts, that the decision was made that each kid would get, uh, each child would get $100,000 right up front. So 300000 out of the estate would be paid out right away. The remaining, if they were under the age of 30, would be held in trust and then paid out at age 30. Uh, and then the other component of this would be like a family disaster. So if everybody was together and something happened, where does the estate go? And basically it was divided 50-50 between um, uh, the sister family and then the sister-in-law's family. So that was pretty straightforward. And then the final thing, which was an interesting discussion, was the payments to executors and trustees for all of this. Now, uh, Section 61 of the Trustee Act outlines how much money people can be paid to do this service, but it has to be sort of compensatory with the amount of effort in general. But they were, uh, you know, this individual was very aware that, you know, there's a lot involved in doing this. It's not a great job, and, uh, you know, it can take a lot of time. So they were comfortable, and they wrote in their will that 2.5% of the estate would be paid uh, to the trustees, and uh, in addition to that, there would be a 0.4%, 0.4% per year care and management fee that the trustees could charge. So let's say someone had a million dollars of investments, then they would get uh, $4,000 a year as an ongoing care and management fee to look after those investments. So overall, a really in- a goodwill uh, in many ways and um, really thought through all the sort of what-if scenarios and um, there was really nothing that we had to, other than as life changes, some, this is going to have to be updated going forward and maybe once all the kids are over 30, they'll completely revamp it as well. So anyway, good time to look, think about you're looking at reviewing your will at the end of the year and we're, uh, and we're more than happy to help clients look at that as well. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Take care. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.